Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. A recent post on Facebook from Sad Jesus reads, "Don't judge people for the choices they make when you don't know the options they had to choose from." We all know what it's like to be under- misunderstood. I have learned in life by hearing other people's stories and within my own journey how deep are the waters of our lives. We never know the history of the person before us. We all know what it's like to be misjudged, and even if we are honest, how we might have assumed things that were just not true of another. If there is one takeaway from today's reading, I pray that we see an open-hearted Jesus, who sees without assumption. So I'd like to start our focus on the woman. So much has been written and said about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and from commentators, the woman of reputation. But I do wonder how much is inferred and assumed in these descriptions. That makes us think we see her, but I honestly wonder if we have missed her, and in missing her, we've overlooked ourselves, and maybe even the heart of God. There is a lot we don't know. However, the text gives us some help as we regard her. By the text, we know that she's a woman. Therefore, we have knowledge of the hardships and oppressed societal constraints placed on her during this period of history. We are also told that she is a Samaritan. Lest there be any confusion in regard to this label, let me clarify: as is often the case for prejudice, there is a history. In this case, a 500-year-old hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. In Kenneth E. Bailey's book *Jesus Through the Middle Eastern Eyes*, he writes: Three hundred years earlier, the Greeks had used Samaria as a base for their control of Jewish territory. The Jews found occasion to retaliate by destroying the Samaritan temple on the summit of Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans responded by penetrating the temple area of Jerusalem. A few days before the birth of Jesus, and scattering bones of the dead across the area on the eve of Passover, in order to defile the complex and make it impossible for the Jews to keep their feast. A lot of hostility. Along with the defiling of the temple, the Samaritans were the children of intermarriage between Jews and Greeks. The very nature of their presence spoke of breaking laws of purity in regard to instructions to not marry outsiders. And then there is the matter of the Samaritan woman's many marriages and current situation. Women were easily discarded by the whims of men, and in this predicament, one does what is necessary to survive. There was no agency, no job opportunity, and very few choices for women. They were slaves to a patriarchal society. If we were to live during this particular period of time, what assumptions or thoughts might one assume without knowing? Prostitute, 
cursed, immoral? Given the negative social distinctions against this Samaritan woman, we can imagine that she may be rather scrappy, intelligent, and resourceful. She is still alive. She has survived with what seems to be a lack of support from family members, husbands of the past, and her present tenuous circumstance. I imagine her to be incredibly resourceful. I envision her to be very knowledgeable about the ways of society and all the subtle and not so subtle ways that might endanger her very existence. We can extrapolate these characters from the study, and today we are invited to learn from her story. When we meet this woman, she is arriving at the well. In the middle of the day, she sets out to get water for her washing, possible meal preparations, and the needs of her home. She is isolated in this endeavor, and as other women have already filled their buckets in the cool of the day, we do not know why she is filling her bucket. At this unusual time, it is due to her own health. Is it due to her own health or her partner's? Did something distract her at home, or is it because of a tainted reputation created by an impossible situation, or is it that God was creating space for an appointment? Whatever the reason, she approaches the well alone. What might she be thinking? She seems to be a woman of faith, as her conversation will soon expose. Is she dreaming of when Messiah comes, when life will be made right, when the opinions of others no longer matter? Lost in her thoughts, she looks up. Before her, a Jewish man sitting on the well, who had to be there. As women throughout the ages know. Did her posture change as she realizes the inevitable encounter to come, perhaps preparing herself for the expected degradation? And then, what might be the intentions of this Jewish man? She is acutely aware of who she is, but who is this man before her? As she approaches, he does not move. He does not create the respectable distance required. He stays seated on Jacob's well. A conversation begins. A request is given: "Give me drink." The one who is able to bring forth water at will is asking for help. He offers her a way to serve. He has no bucket. Jewish men do not drink from the same bucket as one like her, and yet he asks for a drink. So she questions him. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? She's inquisitive. Several normative barriers have already been broken, and another one upcoming at first sip. A bantering begins. Jesus says, "If you knew the gift of God," an interesting statement, to say the least. Jesus is offering himself. Despite the known Jewish customs of distance, he leans in. They talk of water that will quench eternally. Not unlike others who have encountered Jesus of Nazareth, her mind is not grasping the spiritual realm opening before her. She is speaking of that which is concrete and tangible. 
water from a well. Jesus speaks of that which is spirit and a fountain that she has yet to grasp. She asks for the water. That way she can avoid the daily trek to the well. Perhaps she sees this as a way of escape from her imprisoned life. But Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. She is confronted with her reality, yet she answers bravely, I have no husband. Truth. Jesus affirms this truth. She has had five husbands and now lives with another. A connection has been made. Her thoughts are grasping and scrambling with his knowledge. Sir, I see you are a prophet. Every time I read that, I have to laugh because it just feels like one of the biggest understatements <laughs> of who Jesus is. But sir, I see you are a prophet. And I picture the amusement of Jesus with this response. Being held in the eyes of the beloved, I can only imagine the overflowing delight God is having as he rejoices in her. Jesus has to be there, for he has an appointment. This woman, disregarded, shamed, and shunned by a society of Gentile and Jew, is meeting the God who sees. His life, or her life, did not have much choice, yet the God of love chooses her. Though so easily disregarded by society, God sees this invisible woman, and today she is going to meet him. Today she will enter beauty and grace. The dance of words now shifts to worship. Jesus respects her thoughts. He speaks to her as a student and teaches her of what she does not know. He tells her of true worship, not granted on mountains or Jerusalem, but of spirit. In the middle of this glorious day, a conversation of deep theology is taking place. The truth of Jesus is being shared with this woman who hopes. In truth, the tears this woman has cried might indeed fill this well. But today, the kingdom has come. Holiness is here. All identifying markers of gender, class, and sexual behavior are cast aside. Jesus sees his beloved image bearer, a sister who has been treated so poorly by a hostile society, a woman who is unseen and isolated. Her tragic story is unfathomable, yet she holds on to the reality of Messiah. When Messiah comes, a profession of her heart, an articulation of what holds her together in her darkness. Despite the abuse, the shame, the hurt and pain, she, a woman, can whisper to herself, Messiah's coming. At this moment, Christ reveals. And then Jesus tells her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah, honoring her rawness. I think of Hagar crying out and the countless women among the ages who ask for justice, for help, for mercy in a society that continues to oppress, beat, and subjugate. And in the drumbeat of many hearts is the cry of a God whose love for his daughters demand respect. And in the honest brutality of her life, Jesus tells her, 
I am He. Like Hagar, who was the first and only person to name God, Jesus chooses this woman to be the first in self-proclamation that He is God, the Messiah. A true miracle. God sees His daughters. Messiah has come and she is the first to know. The beloved eyes have reached their gaze. Eyes that have no assumptions, no preconceived ideas, no barriers, only a daughter to be embraced. Whatever religion has built to keep her and Jesus apart has been obliterated. The kingdom of God declares her chosen and loved. The worshiping of spirit and truth is now. She is not under any condemnation, but freed in her heart and mind to a realized status of daughter. The burden she carried is absolutely released. Her spirit has been unified with the beloved spirit. The floodgates of the eternal spring have burst forth in splendor of her creator's gaze. And when the disciples arrive, they are speechless. The scene they have stumbled upon is beyond their comprehension. Christianity, writes author Brennan Manning, is not essentially a philosophy of love, but a love affair. James Byron Smith states, God's love for us is a living, passionate, searching love. It is a love story. The mystical Welsh Puritan Morgan Lidd wrote, When the true spirit, true shepherd speaks, and a person hears him, the heart burns within, and the flesh quakes, and the mind lights up like a candle, and the conscience ferments like wine in a vessel, and the will bends to the truth, and that thin, heavenly, mighty voice raises the dead to life, from the grave to self, to wear the crown, and wondrously renews the whole life. Jesus does not condemn. Jesus sees our stories, our pain, and our choices, or lack of them. Jesus beholds us in the fullness of who we are and loves us deeply. In my work as a spiritual director, I cannot tell you how many times I have heard people express untruths of who they are. They've been told things they absorb and believe, and it hurts my heart Every single time I hear them describe themselves in such unloving ways. The lies of who we are or who we think others are inflict, they do inflict great damage. Those assumptions are like daggers aimed sharply into our hearts and cause great harm. Our inner thoughts may say, if you really knew me, if you saw, if you understand who I really am, are a haunting contemplation. In them we hold a strong desire to be seen, known, and be held with great acceptance. I believe we can identify with this woman whose gender and life brought many gazes based on prejudice. We absorb others' view of ourselves, and we live our lives in response. And sadly, we also bring these false narratives to those we meet. Yet when the kingdom of God breaks through, All of these presumptions are laid aside. 
Many years ago, a young woman sat in a church service. Outward observations might conclude that she was fine. She was well fed and clothed. She had a large family that appeared happy and well, but in reality, her heart was heavy with burden. She was from a fractured family. Multiple betrayals and abandonment weighed heavily on her. She had witnessed and experienced abuse. She had heard and experienced verbal assault that had attempted to destroy any sense of value. She had seen the outward hypocrisy of the profession of God, and yet behavior that she could only call evil. She witnessed untreated mental health issues and suicide attempts. Those called to care for her participated in the very conduct conduct that she had been taught was immoral and ungodly. She was secluded. And confused, at a glance or in a friendly conversation, others assumed she was fine. Yet, in a life-altering moment in an unfamiliar church and setting, God's eyes beheld her and said, "I want you." It was clear to her how could she possibly be wanted when she knew more rejection than any child should bear. And yet, her beloved whispered. I want you. God saw this young woman, knew her story, and called her into love. That young woman was me. Stained by life and incredible loss, the eyes of others could not see my pain. But when the eyes of a loving God and the voice of great compassion speaks, like this Samaritan woman, I rejoiced in being seen. This Samaritan woman is she not all of us? We hope, we long for love in quiet desperation. We wonder. Jesus' gaze embraces us as we were created to be embraced. Jesus' eyes search our eyes that we may see that we are indeed so very loved. The love of God quenches far more than water or bread. And when the overflowing realization of eternal love floods through our one, they run to their community with joy, skipping lightly with a testimony of the one who sees and does not condemn. Jesus sees us as the image bearers we are, invites us to become siblings, friends, and even co-lovers. We get to be like Jesus, and we share the goodness of a loving God. The kingdom breaks through. Today's reading is set in an ordinary day, among the daily tasks of survival. In the midst of chores in life, we have a God who meets us in the heat of the day, a God who knows our story intimately, a God who sets apart time to whisper, to speak, and pronounce the everlasting truth that love is here. Despite what others think and what we may think, the eyes of God breaks through to what He thinks as He sees us as glorious humans that He loves. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you. And give you peace.